interest in the following audio recording produced by Chesterton House, a center for Christian studies at Cornell University. Support for Chesterton House comes entirely from listeners like you, and we invite you to help us continue making the recordings of past lectures available at no cost through a donation to the ministry. You can find additional resources and make a donation at www.chestertonhouse.org. This audio recording is copyrighted and unauthorized duplication is prohibited. All right. Um, okay. So you address the person who uh, is looking to become more compassionate. Could you address those of us who uh, need help in the other direction? So our compassion causes us to be perhaps too soft and not uh, speak with justice. So how do we learn how to do a better job of that? All of us are highly complicated creatures who bring to every moral situation a whole mystery of who we are, who we have been, how we were raised, what our temperament is. Um, Some of us are wired, hardwired, temperamentally, to be inclined much more toward compassion than toward you know, the harder virtues like justice and prudence. That's all in the mix. And um, self-knowledge about these things, as you're indicating, is a very important piece. I think the apprenticeship idea uh, does help. We can see how those who certainly have compassion, but who have a long-term care project for somebody to become a little business-like about it, because otherwise, if they don't survive their care project, the person who's in trouble isn't going to get anything from them. Now you've got two people who need compassion. Um, So that helps. Another thing that helps, as always, is to understand that we are not God. There is so much that we cannot fix. Can't fix it. Nobody is going to fix it until Jesus comes again. Maybe in the interim Jesus is going to fix it, but maybe not. And meanwhile, we have to be able to trust that God knows what he's doing. And that the fact that we can't fix it is a simple mark of our human finiteness and frailty, and that um, we're going to have to leave a good deal of this in God's hands when we can't fix something. You know, the Psalms are full, full of lament uh, over so many people that aren't doing well. You know, the enemy is across the border again. God's people have been humiliated. I myself have been shamed. Um, in all but one case, the psalmist ends up praising God, but not be- in every case because all this has gotten fixed, but in lots of cases because he trusts God to fix it. So preserving a really clear distinction between ourselves and God can spare us at least some agony over things that we think should be fixed and which maybe subconsciously we think aren't going to fix be fixed unless I keep on pouring out pouring out my compassion. Not necessarily. Might not happen. And to come to terms with that and 
leave this matter in God's hands, to pray this matter into the heart of God, can help some of us. There are probably other things to say, too, that um, I won't right now, but that's a great question. Hi, I, uh, my name is Paul, and I just want to thank you for this message. It's very timely. Um, sometimes when I when I hear about compassion, I um, I don't know. I, I think about history, for example, and you know, you look at uh, like a lot of the reforms that took place in the 19th century uh, as uh, populations began to grow and grow and uh, a lot of the urban centers became more troubled. And, um, you know, there were all these pushes for better housing and and uh, soup kitchens. I know that was a big thing, you know, soup kitchens and food pantries and things like that to <clears throat> provide for the needs of the, of, uh, of the poor and that sort of thing. And uh, what a lot of the history books don't say, and, you know, but... Most of those efforts were spearheaded by believers. You know, sure. you know, um, it, it wasn't the secular humanists who, who did all that stuff. I mean, it was it was believers and it was you know churches that got a lot of that stuff going. And you know, you mentioned the abolitionist movement, but that's the same thing yep. too. Too. Um, and it concerns me that in our present day, so many of those efforts have been taken over by state agencies, you know, um, and I was just wondering if maybe you could comment on that and how we can, you know, how we, you know, what what role we can play in, in those types of things. Thanks. This is a classic case in which a person thinking about a question like this needs to understand that Compassion is not the only virtue at the table. Prudence, wisdom is needed. Justice is needed. Uh, there have been plenty of movements that have been um, sparked by Christian compassion that have been enormous good for people, and they have thrived in those movements. By the way, one of the things that you'll notice right now, the sort of the... Uh, popular intellectual landscape is dominated uh, in some areas by the books of the new atheists, you know, Richard Dawkins, uh, Daniel Dennett, Sam Harris, others who have nothing but scorn for religion and for the Christian religion in particular. One of the things that they don't do much of is to recount all the orphanages, hospitals, uh, places that care for um, children who need adoption, uh, Christian uh, care for the uh, mentally ill, for the disabled. You, if you pass a magnet, this is Dallas Willard's idea, pass a magnet over, uh, certain, just take Western history for the last 2,000 years, and pull up everything that has been influenced by Jesus Christ and his followers that's good. You pull that all up. You know, all the colleges, all the schools, all the hospitals, all the orphanages, all the centers for people with disabilities, all the adoption agencies, pull that all up, 
he made a huge hole in Western history. Christians have been behind a whole lot, as you suggest, of the movements of mercy. Um, most of the hospitals, the old hospitals in Europe, were founded by Christians as hospitality centers, hospitals, hospitality. So, uh, spot on with that. Now the question, uh, how much should private agencies do, including religious private agencies, and how much should governments do, is a question that Christians are going to respond to differently. This is a question of prudence, of wisdom. And there will be different answers by Christians as well as by many others. But here's a place where everybody, Christian or not, is instructed by history. What has happened to some movements that have moved from private hands into government hands? In some cases, the, um, it looks as if the result has been pretty good. In some other cases, it looks like the result has been awful. Uh, so, how do you think about that? Well, this is a prime example of the kind of, kind of thing that Christians in churches have adult discussions about. How as Christians do we think about this? And you want people from different sides of the prudence spectrum here to offer what they have to offer. And some of the time, the answer is not going to be very obvious. There's a lot of messiness in all of this. And we get instructed by history and then make some of the same mistakes people made before. So uh, it would not be particularly interesting if I indicated what I thought about this, because I'm just one among many Christians, and everybody has an opinion. But you're absolutely on the money to say this is something that we all need to be thinking about very much. Um, hi, I just wanted to see if you could explain a little bit more, clarify uh, the difference between a non-believer's compassion and a believer's compassion. Mm -hmm. I believe in special grace, which is grace sponsored and ignited by the Holy Spirit. Uh, it's the grace that regenerates us that justifies us and forgives our sins. It's the grace that brings us the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience. Love and compassion are certainly among them. But God is the God of the whole human race. And God has common grace for people that have not been regenerated or not yet regenerated. Um, there are people whose heart goes out to distressed people who do not believe in Jesus Christ. Now, to be a Christian is to say that their heart going out to people is because God has graced them with common grace. This is not something that would happen in our sin and in our fallenness unless God had either preserved a part of the image of God in them or, if it's absent, ignited part of the image of God in them. When unbelievers show compassion, we should say, thank God. God has been at work in this person. They have not yet come to confession of the author of their compassion, but there's no doubt who the author of their compassion actually is. We should not be surprised 
that the work of God goes ahead of the spread of the gospel. And that you can sometimes see signs that God has been at work even when the gospel has not yet taken hold and received a response of faith. People can't help showing some of the image of God because God never leaves himself without a witness. If a great composer composes great music and doesn't believe in God, God is behind the great music. If a great artist paints gorgeous art and doesn't believe in God, no matter, God is behind the beauty. And the same goes with beauty in human character, compassion, kindness, humility. An unbelieving neighbor shows some of this. We should not be surprised because God is at work everywhere. And all the praise for this goes to him. I was curious to what you alluded to at the beginning as to how, what, what will the need be for compassion um, in the time when there will be no trouble, hurt, sorrow, pain? Yeah. My guess is, and by the way, I think um, guesses and speculations about the new heaven and earth can actually be edifying, provided that we identify them as guesses and not straight readouts of the Bible. My guess is that in the new heaven and earth, we will have um, little reason for the kind of distress that belongs to an evil age. In fact, I think we'll have no reason for that, because in the new heaven and earth, there will be no evil. But would we still feel compassion like that of God for our memory of people who were distressed before the new heaven and earth? Maybe. Would we, of course, I think the answer to this one is pretty plainly yes, would we still have the whole empathy part? You know, huge resonance with others in the new heaven and earth uh, who are not distressed now, but maybe quite different from us. I think that the scriptures both in Isaiah and in Revelation indicate that the new heaven and earth is full of the earth's cultural treasures. Silk from China. Lace from Belgium. Heavyweight boxers from the U.S. No, not heavyweight boxers from the U.S. Um, you know, Isaiah tells us about Lumber from Lebanon. It's Lebanon's glory. It's what makes Lebanon Lebanon, that they've got lumber to offer. All the earth's treasures are in the new heaven and new earth. I think that includes language and ways of thinking. I doubt that there will be translators in heaven. I think instead that everybody will bring their cultural treasures and we will spend some time learning their language and rejoicing over the differences between, say, English and Japanese. Uh, English speakers of Dutch heritage, when they see something that 
is exasperating and yet can't be fixed by them, so they've got a kind of exasperation and resignation mixed, say, ha, H-E-A-H, exclamation point. The Japanese would say, sa, a reaction to the same thing. In the new heaven and earth, we might find that pretty amusing and pretty interesting. Our empathy would still be alive. Our distress, maybe and maybe not, depending on how acute our memory is of distress. And then there's a whole host of questions about how we would think about people who weren't there. What does that mean? How would that go? 